Good evening. Uh, welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. Uh, this is the Wednesday, February 7, 2018 edition of our little weather get-together. And uh, tonight we're going to be uh, reviewing the Southeast Climate Report. Um, we have uh, Jordan McLeod on with us from the Southeast Climate Re or Southeast Climate Southeast Regional Climate Center. I'll get it right eventually. I have it wrote down right here, and I can't read tonight. So uh, Jordan will be joining us tonight. He's going to be kind of going over the climate report. As we know, uh, it's kind of an active season throughout the Southeast, and uh, we're going to dive into that report tonight and kind of uh, talk about what it meant for our area and maybe what it's going to mean for our area coming up this year. So we're happy to have Jordan, um, first-time guest. So we'll have him introduce himself here in just a little bit. But before we do that, um, since we are a live broadcast, we have a few housekeeping things. If you're watching Watching tonight on our Facebook Live Periscope, our YouTube page, um, please feel free to interact with us throughout the show. Uh, you can do that numerous ways by commenting either on uh, the, the Periscope feed or the uh, Facebook Live feed or even on the YouTube uh, page. It gives you an area to comment. Uh, and if not, you can interact with us on Twitter at Carolina WX Group. We'll be monitoring those throughout the night as well. And um, as we are finishing up the program, we'll let Jordan uh, promote this, um, his uh, social media accounts, not only for himself, but for the Climate Center as well. And if you have any questions, uh, you can uh, direct them those way, uh, that way as well. And I'll tell you, uh, I use the Climate website a lot. And I think uh, after tonight's show, a lot of you guys who are watching tonight will really find some useful of uh, what all you can do on the page. So uh, looking forward to having Jordan on with us tonight and not only talking about the climate report, but also um, all the things you can do on their website. So with that, it's been a semi-quiet week. Um, we really turned the pattern here. We're uh, not really cold anymore. It's more of a kind of a cool, damp pattern. And uh, today, a uh, big rain uh, maker for most of the area. I know here in Western North Carolina, we got a close to an inch and a half of rain. And uh, some areas even seeing some flooding in the Greenville Spartanburg area as well as the North Carolina mountains. So a lot of heavy rain today and we're going to see more heavy rain over the weekend. Uh, but it wasn't really a um, change of story down in the Charlotte area. I'll bring in James to uh, with this. James, you guys also saw a lot of heavy rain in the Charlotte area today. Yeah, that's right, Scotty. I was actually just telling uh, everyone before the show that I forgot to bring in my trash cans last night. Don't tell the HOA. Uh, and they were left out in the street with their lid open. And when I went to bring them in before, I didn't measure it. This isn't a scientific observation, but there were several inches of rain sloshing around there in the bottom of my trash can. So we did have a pretty eventful uh, morning commute through the first half of the day, uh, compounded by the fact that our uh, GSP radar was down for maintenance. But uh, luckily, we didn't have any severe weather of any sorts. And... Uh, 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 I'm hearing some late breaking news, Scotty, that uh, you're telling us that uh, that GSP radar may be back up in use as early as uh, tonight. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I did see a tweet sent out from them uh, just about an hour, hours a half ago, and it said the maintenance was completed and everything was ready to go. So that'll be real helpful as we go into Friday and Saturday and over the weekend with another chance of heavy rain and even some storms. And Talking about storms and heavy rain, uh, Shay, you and uh, Jared as well in the Charleston area saw some heavy rain. I'll uh, toss it to Jared first, and then I'll let Shay uh, kind of talk about uh, the effects of uh, the rain as well in his area. But Jared, uh, kind of a soggy day for you guys in the low country as well. Yeah, you know, we need it. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of funny looking at the climate report. It all fell after 5 o'clock, so there's nothing in the climate report that says anything about rain. So you go to the observations, about three-tenths of an inch. Um, 
Good little downpour came through. We had first thunder at the airport, recorded by the Observer at the airport since November 9th. So, woo, storms! You know, we were just really excited to see that. Had a nice shelf cloud come through. Um, and then, you know, we're just we're just on this little roller coaster right now. It seems like every weekend we get a little, at least half of it is rained out and looks like uh, the upcoming weekend is going to be the same. Um, but, you know, we again, you know, we're trying to battle, we're trying to beat back some uh, drought, so I, I can deal with that. Yes, very, very true. A lot of the area in the southeast uh, needing some rain. And Shay, I'll bring you in on this. I was talking a little bit earlier, um, hints of a, of a pattern change. And I know you and I and, and Jordan and James was talking about this before the show. It really starts to seem that we're flipping that pattern into a more moist, uh, moist uh, pattern and kind of a warmer pattern for us here in the southeast over the next few weeks. Well, let me take myself off of me. That, that's <laughs> absolutely right, Scotty. Um, uh, one thing real quick, I want to back up and show the drought monitor for the southeast, which uh, if you can see everything here, uh, we can see that the, the drought has been sort of creeping up slowly uh, week by week. And so we're ha we have some areas that are starting to become uh, severe, like D2 areas, D3 extreme drought over in Alabama. Uh, some of these areas are abnormally dry in the South Carolina and even spreading towards the coastline. But uh, the good thing is that uh, the radar signatures from today with the cold front, this cold front has sort of stalled along the coastline. So that's continuing some of the Gulf moisture across some of these areas that really need this rain uh, pretty badly. So it's a, it's a good thing for uh, this, this front and maybe some of the other fronts to come as well. Uh, when we talk about the future pattern, I'll, I'll run from Tropical Tidbits, uh, one of my favorite little sites here to go to. And um, we sort of see a pattern where the mid-Atlantic states and to the north, they're going to get some of this colder air and some of the snowstorms as they normally would this time of the year. And when we run, when we start running the models, we don't want to get too far out in time, but we can see that the high pressure that moves out into the Atlantic uh, really brings up a southerly draw. And you can see the moisture lifting up into the southeast region uh, by Saturday, February the 10th. So we have more moisture on the way uh, along where undulating fronts are to the north. And then we just get a lot of moisture. We have this Bermuda high sort of sitting out here and just keeping that southerly warm flow with moisture training up into the southeast. So I think we're going to see the drought uh, pretty much uh, diminish here over the next few weeks or so as this pattern seems to want to continue over and over again. Uh, so it could be we could be setting up for a rather warm, maybe a warmer than expected latter half of February. Um, and we're just going to watch and see what happens though. But it looks like we're right now for the southeast we're looking pretty good. You know, we got moisture and warmth. The only thing we may need to look for in the future is some severe weather. All right. Thank you for that, Shay. And I'll bring in the one guy who did have a little brush with some winter weather. Uh, we'll bring in Eric. Eric, you guys had a little bit of everything yesterday. I think you had thunder, lightning, and maybe even some snow flurries or sleet pellets in the uh, Memphis area. We were that close. <laughs> we did have thunder and lightning, and we were two counties uh, south of the winter weather advisory. Um, the precipitation we got overnight, which brought an uh, inch, inch and a half of rain uh, from last evening into the overnight hours. Uh, so pretty good, uh, pretty good deluge here. Um, but the, uh, the precip moved out just as the temperatures were falling. We did hit 32 this morning, but it was after the rain had ended. So we skated by, well, we didn't really skate by. We got through that event because <laughs> we would have been skating if we'd been in Northeast Arkansas last night. Uh, about, some, there are some reports of about a quarter of an inch uh, of ice, freezing rain up there last night. So they were uh, under an ice storm warning. Uh, but we uh, we made it through with just rain, which I'm I'm happy about. Uh, the clouds stuck around today. We got to a balmy 36 this afternoon for the high. Um, 
and we are in an area of the southeast that is not in a drought and so uh, we keep getting an event like this every three or four days and we're going to stay that way i think very much so and eric you brought a memory james i don't know why we didn't talk about this but we even had a little bit of ice here in the carolinas over the weekend and uh we uh, did not, that's right it feels like not, a millennium ago but uh <laughs> Very not much of an issue. No, no. It was one of those early in the morning, little bit of icing, especially up in your neck of the woods in the foothills. Not so much here in South Charlotte, but then by the time we got to noon, it was raining yeah. and it was all gone. Uh, it does yeah. remind me of a tale that I think was 2017. Uh, I want to say big about mid-March. We had snow in the morning, and then it was like 60-some-odd, almost 70 degrees in the afternoon, and my sister happened to be visiting that day from upstate New York, and she was very confused. So it reminded me very much of that day. That is, yeah, it was, uh, I think some areas, we got close to a quarter inch of ice, but by one o'clock Sunday afternoon, everything was warmed up and almost melted away. So I'm going to put on my Florida Gator hat oh, tonight come on. because, because uh, I'm going to toss this to James Briarton, who is a graduate of the University of Georgia, who's going to be talking to Jordan McLeod, who is also a Georgia Bulldog, and I just couldn't really stand all that Georgia love going on in here. So, I was James, just I'm going to like you, Scotty. <laughs> I, my Gators and I, we're going to toss it to you guys, and uh, we'll start tonight's conversation. I, I meant to cover up my big bald head with my University of Georgia <laughs> hat, and I will have to go get it, Jordan. But I think Jordan is wearing uh, a, a Super G shirt tonight or, or sweater. What is that there, Jordan? Yeah, I've got my black UGA polo on tonight. Okay, so we are we are representing. That's right. So we, you know we had Dr. Marshall Shepard on a few weeks ago. You may recall uh, there was a lot of Georgia love. Uh, so Jordan and I were in some of those classes together. So it's good to talk with you again. And thanks for coming on uh, the show tonight. I'm going to start off our Q and A with a really simple question. Uh, but uh, I know some of the uh, panelists on our show are familiar with the work of the Southeast Regional Climate Center, but I'm not sure our audience uh, may be fully aware of it. So uh, first question tonight is: Can you just tell us a little bit about what the Climate Center does? Sure. So, uh, so uh, my name is Jordan McLeod. Uh, I'm the regional climatologist at the Southeast Regional Climate Center. Uh, we're located in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Go Heels. Um, and we, uh, let's see, I've been in this position for going on about two and a half years now. Um, so it's a, uh, we're one of six regional climate centers across the country. Uh, each one of them are responsible for probably about a five or six state uh, region. And so our area of responsibility is Alabama, Georgia, Florida, the Carolinas, Virginia, and also Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands down in the Caribbean. So pretty, uh, you know, diverse area in terms of, of you know, different weather and climate extremes. Um, so um, I want to give a shout out to uh, two, two of my colleagues. Uh, so the director of the center is Dr. Chip Conrad. Um, he's uh, been at the center for many years now, I think since 2007, if memory serves right. And uh, William Schmitz is our service climatologist. And so he, uh, you know, answers the phone for media requests. He's in charge of our social media accounts, which I'll introduce a little bit later on. And also, you know, uh, helps me out tremendously with looking up climate data for the reports, like the one I'll be sharing shortly. Um, so we, um, you know, that's kind of a, an overview of what we do. We're sort of um, responsible for analyzing, you know, any weather and climate data uh, across the region. And what we really try to do is value add that data. You know, anybody can go on the Internet now and, and look up, um, you know, what were the temperatures over the past year, um, you know, numbers like that. But what we try to do is really 
uh, value add that and, and produce products uh, or graphics or reports that sort of tell the story behind those numbers. And you, you mentioned the report, and we're going to go through it here uh, pretty extensively, and, and you're going to do a much better job of it than I can, so I'm happy we have you. But I was, I was starting to look over it yesterday and uh, got a little highlighter crazy at times because there were some areas that really popped out at me, not only as a, as a great kind of walkthrough of what we experienced in 2017, the extremes, the highs and the lows, and the averages of everything in between, but there are really also some really key events that I think uh, you know we've been talking about here in the Carolina Weather Group, uh, such as Hurricane Irma and such, that really stand out. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned your your states that you guys cover as well too because you know obviously we focus a lot on north carolina and south carolina but you guys have some great data here on some of our neighboring states and also some of those islands uh you talked about as well too so they're all kind of here in the in the report and what of what an eventful 2017 it was for for so much of that region and i want to go through it in, in just a moment but before we do that just so we can i think uh you know kind of all grasp um a little bit um of what you guys do in a day at day day in and day out basis what what's an average day for you like uh, as a regional climatologist? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so typically, you know, I, I go into the office and sort of, you know, check through um, and see, you know, what what's happened over uh, the previous day. Um, you know, if there were obviously if there were any notable weather events, um, you know, such as the, you know, we had this uh, the freezing rain event that you guys were talking about in parts of the Carolina, uh, parts of the Carolinas and, and really up into Virginia as well. Um, you know, my job is to kind of go through uh, any of the National Weather Service products that are issued like public information statements, we call PNS products. Um, you know, any, any sort of summaries that have been put out by the Weather Service. We work in, obviously we work in close collaboration with all of the different weather forecast offices across our region, uh, really valuable partners. And so, I go, you know, with, with the help of William Schmitz, uh, go through those products and try to really synthesize or summarize the information that's in there in kind of a, a regional perspective. You know, we, um, you know, we don't always get, um, you know, we, we don't uh, get down into the super nitty gritty details all the time, but we try to kind of keep things in a broader regional context. And, and, and really, I think a key word, and, and it's also the name of one of our key products that I'll show, is try to put weather and climate information into perspective um, and really into historical perspective. So, um, you know, if we've, if we've noticed that there's uh, been, you know, extreme uh, snowfall totals that have been recorded, we try to go back in the database and see just how extreme those are and try to put put that into context for people to understand. And then there's all sorts of really interesting data in here, not only uh, from a weather and climate perspective, but also as folks are listening, I can, I think, maybe just shout out a few of these. But you talked about, you know, snowfall and the, and the like. And going back to last year, Mount Mitchell, North Carolina, absorbed its highest one-day snowfall for December and its fourth highest one-day snowfall for any month on record, an accumulation of 25 inches. I mean, that's that's quite a lot of snow. And I know you're going to be walking us through some of this, but I, as I was highlighting last night, I couldn't help but think we're just going to have all these local shout-outs for folks who are listening and tuning in tonight um, as, as we make our way um, through this report. What do you guys use to, um, I, I know you mentioned the National Weather Service and the public information statements, but are there certain tool sets that are out there that you guys use to monitor and observe these events? And I ask that with the notion in mind that today we had lots of rain come through the region, but we had no radar in Greenville, Spartanburg, no radar in Charleston, Jacksonville. I mean, how does that affect what you guys are doing? 
Yeah, I mean, it can that can be pretty substantially impactful at times, you know, for what we're doing. Um, you know, I would say, you know, one way to distinguish what we do at the Climate Center versus like a weather forecast office, for example, you know, we're, we're not for, I mean, we are degreed meteorologists, but we're not, we don't do forecasting for our jobs. And so that's, you know, that's a really key distinction to make for, I think, for viewers is that we're, we're not a forecasting agency, although we're, I'd say we're capable of doing that. Uh, but we, we really look at things in a retrospective manner. And so after a storm, um, you know, has, has come through, for example, let's just say a severe weather outbreak, um, you know, I'll, I'll sort of monitor, you know, uh, storm surveys, for example, if there's been a, a tornado outbreak, um, you know, I'll sort of monitor how, you know, how many storm surveys are put out. Um, you know, these are conducted by the weather service. They go out and, you know, uh, determine, use the damage path of tornadoes to rate and also assess, uh, you know, tornadoes and to, to determine if they occur, for example. Um, so, you know, I gather, sort of gather all of that information and compile it, um, you know, to, to use in, in all of our reports. And, you know, also if there's really noteworthy aspects of a given weather event, um, you know, we, we really try to push that information out to all of our users, you know, via social media. Social media has been a tremendous uh, outlet for us as the climate center to really put out this information to a wide, you know, a wide variety uh, of users, um, you know, so that they can, uh, you know, really start to understand how these weather events fit into a climate perspective. So let me ask you a little bit about this uh, report here. It's mm, dozen or so pages in length, uh, lots of lots of data uh, sets in it, and, and some graphics that you guys put together as well too. Can can you just I guess from a high level to kick things off, how would you summarize what, what stood out to you uh, in this 2017 report that uh, you and your colleagues put together? That's yeah. Uh, I, I you know honestly off the top of my head, I would say it it was a year with a little bit of everything for the region. Um, I mean, we as I, as I kind of reflected back through the report today, you know, do, probably doing similar to what you were doing, kind of highlighting different sections that I thought were really important uh, to bring out. Uh, this evening, it, it's just amazing how many different, you know, variety of weather uh, extremes and, and impacts and different types of events were recorded. Uh, anything from uh, a big winter storm, actually a couple of big winter storms, one in January uh, 2017 and then one this past December. Um, we had uh, record-breaking tornado activity across the region, particularly Georgia, and I'll try to remember to mention that later on. Uh, obviously, the tropical cyclone season was a huge story, pro perhaps the biggest story uh, for the southeast. Um, seven landfalling tropical cyclones, not all of those made landfall in our region, but they did go on to have, you know, indirect uh, or even actually direct impacts in our region. Um, and let's see what else we had, uh, again, uh, exceptional warmth across the region, which just kind of seems to be a broken record at this point. Um, so anyway, I, I would just say, you know, a year, honestly, a year with a little bit of everything. Um, I, I don't want to rob you too much of the highlights you've made. I've made just one or two here. Um, and you mentioned the warmth and, uh, I know 
this conversation tends to get a little political, but that's not what we're looking to do here. We're just looking at the, the data sets. But, you know, this sentence kind of jumped out to me. Um, uh, two-thirds of the long-term stations, the weather observation stations, observed or tied their warmest annual mean temperature on record, uh, including Asheville and Columbia in the in the Carolinas. Uh, South Carolina absorbed its, uh, observed its warmest year on record, uh, while North Carolina tied their warmest. I mean, I'm only holding the 2017 report. I know you've been in this job for a little bit. That would be the trend, more or less, would it not? Definitely. Uh, I mean, it seems like, you know, at least in the, you know, the few years that I've been doing this, it seems like every year we continue to set new uh, record-breaking warm records, um, you know, across the region. And, um, you know, whether we're we're looking at this from a station-based perspective, you know, individual stations, like you mentioned, uh, Augusta and Columbia, uh, Asheville and others, um, you know, we we had, uh, like you said, 23 of those across the region. And again, these are long-term stations, which in this report I defined as having at least 50 years of data. Um, so, you know, we're looking at stations that have uh, a very good period of record, uh, very good data efficacy. Um, and so it's really impressive that we would have that many that are observing their warmest annual mean temperature on record. But then also if we aggregate all of that station data uh, and NCEI or the National Centers for Environmental Information, who's our source of funding within NOAA, uh, they create what we refer to as state average data. Uh, and they produce that usually actually right about this time every month, kind of the end of the first week, end of the second week. And they, if we look at that data aggregated uh, into, you know, for each state, yeah, we're seeing, you know, like this year, we saw, I think, three states that either tied or observed their warmest year on record. Um, next, you know, uh, previous years, it could have been different states, but we're seeing across the southeast, you know, this, like you said, this general upward trend in, in temperatures. You know, being where we are in winter in February, um, I think many of us like a quick peek at snow and then we're ready to move on to some other things and we all get excited when the warm temperatures come on out but you know it is winter after all and so i was thinking about that last night reading that charlotte north carolina where i am spent 236 days or 65 percent of the year above 70 degrees uh as their maximum afternoon high raleigh some 231 days um you know uh we we get these warm spells here uh, and we're all really grateful that the weather is warm, but this eventually, after uh, continuing for, for s- several days, you know, we'll, we'll come up to the level of, I guess, being into the, the climate. I, I think what I'm, what I'm trying to get at not only is, is it you know, a, a great sales pitch for the Carolinas to tell northerners who are tired of winter that they can come on down here and spend 65% of the year or more in 60-degree-plus temperatures. <laughs> Mom, Dad, I'm looking at you. Um, but... Um, I know recently the AMS, the American Meteorological Society, published a letter to a certain high government official who I don't want to get into politics, but just to remind that individual of the difference between climate and weather. So before I have you, Jordan, go through our uh, the bullet points you guys have here, can, can you set that stage for us, the difference between climate and weather? Sure. I mean, it, honestly, if I failed this question, I, I probably should have both of my degrees stripped from me. So, um, you know, you can tell me how, how good I do. But no, kidding aside... Yeah, I mean, basically, weather is just short-term variations in atmospheric conditions at a given location, or it may be up to a, a regional scale. 
So we're talking about, you know, uh, parameters like atmospheric moisture. So think of that as like humidity at the surface, air temperature, uh, wind speed, cloudiness, whether it's precipitating or not, all of those different conditions combined together produce what we think of as weather. Uh, and the, again, this varies on a, a relatively shorter time scale. So anywhere from minutes to hours to days to maybe a week or a couple of weeks at the most. Um, you know, it's a little bit, the boundary between weather and climate can be a little fuzzy at times. But, uh, you know, so that, that's kind of weather. And then climate is more of the longer term um, average uh, of those weather conditions. And I want to be careful because, you know, I learned, uh, you know, a key distinction is it's not just the average of those weather conditions. Climatologists typically look at a 30-year period as kind of the representative um, sample of weather conditions, if you will. But it's also, it's, I think it's useful to think about climate in terms of a distribution. Um, so we, hopefully we all kind of remember the bell curve or the normal distribution, um, you know, back in statistics. And so um, that's, to me, I, I kind of think of that distribution when I think about climate is, you know, the average is kind of the, uh, the peak of the bell, if you will, so sort of the middle of that curve. But you also can't forget the, the two tails of that distribution, or that's what we think of as extremes. Um, so it's kind of that combination of average weather conditions, which honestly are not really observed all that frequently, um, and sort of that tail portion of the distribution or the extremes that are occasionally observed. I have to apologize, Jordan, to one of my panelists who uh, was trying to give me the wave signal to, to tell me he had a question. And so I'm going to make my way back down to Charleston, South Carolina. And Shay Gibson, I think, has a question for you. My apologies, Shay. The floor is all yours. No, no, James, James, all, good, all great points leading to uh, the bulk of the topic that we're getting into tonight. I, I wanted to ask you real quick, though, Jordan, um, when you're collecting all this data, I'm sure that you're getting information from the Weather Service offices across the Southeast region and who, wherever your prospective regions are. Uh, are there any other tools that you use, say, like the Coco Ross Network or uh, any other private network, private weather company, anyone else that you're getting data from that's considered official or unofficial? Or, or how are you compiling everything to get your products? It's a great question, Shay. And uh, the answer, short answer to that question is yes, we're absolutely uh, focused a bit, you know, uh, exclusively there on the weather service. But you're right. I mean, we also definitely take into account the Coco Ross Network. That's been tremendous and sort of filling in the gaps. I mean, we have, I would say in the Southeast, we have a pretty dense network of um, sort of, you know, first order stations, if you will. So the ASOS network, the automated system, uh, and also the co-op, uh, cooperative observer network. But it's still not dense enough to capture, you know, especially, for example, during the summertime when we have pop-up convective thunderstorms and we're trying to figure out what's the highest rainfall that we observed across a given area. The Cocoa Ross network really comes in handy there where we can dr drill even finer down to what people are, are observing. And I, I use, uh, we use Cocoa Ross stations at, at the Climate Center in our reports frequently. Uh, give you a shout out too. I know you're part of the Weatherflow network and I used uh, several of the Weatherflow station uh, wind observations in the report for um, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. That was came in tremendous, uh, tremendously handy for me because there's just there's relatively fewer stations, as you know, in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, at least first order stations. So uh, so that weather flow network was great for us to be able to find, you know, fill in the gaps there. Yeah, NHC um, 
they really were partnered with them. So it, it, it's a it's a great relationship that we have to be able to share the data with them and uh, have them put into the reports. So I'm kind of guessing here that uh, sort of continuing on, we looked at, to the viewers here, my, my apologies, the Coco Ross network has to do with precipitation, how much rainfall has fallen over an area. Uh, there are other tools though, like, um, and this is kind of where you talked about real time versus after the fact. Uh, do you ever look at real time radar for any kind of information on severe weather? Do you, um, you say you don't forecast, but do you observe in real time what you're doing? Definitely. I mean, I, you know, we, we definitely track uh, weather systems, uh, you know, whether it be a you know, winter storm or a, perhaps a, a March, uh, trop, you know, a March cyclone with severe weather or even a landfalling tropical cyclone. We track those in real time. And, you know, really, I think it gives us a, an appreciation for how an event develops. And, you know, by us sort of tracking that in real time, I think we're able to really sort of gather uh, bits of information that you know will really help us in whether it's reporting or whether we want to send out information via social media. I think by following it uh, as it develops, that kind of helps us as meteorologists assess the storm in a in a in a deeper way, rather than if we just wait for the storm to you know to finish and, and dissipate or move on then we're kind of retracing our steps and we may forget things along the way. So we, we definitely use all of the, you know, the operational radar satellite, the GO-16, uh, you know, satellites are, have been, you know, have been tremendous here in just the short amount of time it's been operational. Um, you know, obviously the, the, this, all of the station observations, we, you know, we track those in real time as well. So definitely a part of what we do. Good deal. And last, last part for me is, do you consider what you do partially forensic meteorology or is do you can do you have to go back and, and study systems, maybe even download level two radar, things of that nature to, in order to go back and study a system? Yeah, that's that's actually a really great way to put it. Um, yeah, I think there is that component, um, you know, because even when you're tracking a storm in real time, there's only you know, you're trying to document things. You know, I, I keep a. Uh, and my colleague William, we both keep weather logs, you know, that we, uh, as, as a month develops, you know, we tr sort of copy down what we think are the, are the most important things that have occurred. Um, and, you know, we sort of try to, to stay on top of things as best we can. But inevitably, at the end of the month, you know, as we're sort of preparing to write the report, there's always little bits of information that may have slipped through the cracks. And so we find ourselves going back to the databases or the you know, there's a lot of great archive uh, resources out there for, you know, radar, satellite, um, a variety of sources. NCEI has some great products, um, you know, and other people um, have put up great archives as well. So we definitely go back and dig through that uh, to mine everything really to the best that we can. Very good. Thank you very much. James, back to you. Uh, thank you, Shay. Um, and I'm actually going to go right back over to uh, Eric, who I think has a question for Jordan as well. And then, uh, Jordan, I'll have you take you uh, take us uh, through some of the highlights of the report. But first, I think Eric has a question regarding data. I do. Um, I wanted to just 
follow up briefly on the on the data sources that you're using. Of course, there's especially when you're trying to trend uh, data from one year to the next and so forth. Um, data quality is an important part of that as well. So I'm I'm kind of wondering, um, you know, with with uh, changing of uh, maybe build up around an ASOS station over the years, where you you end up getting some bias in that, or if you're using things like Cocoros and some of the other data that you know is going to have its kind of inherent biases in it. Do you account for that, or do you allow um, like NCI, NCEI and others to kind of do that quality assessment for you, and then just use the end product? That's a great question. Um, yeah, so there, I, I would say there's there's a mixture um, of it's it's sort of a mixed answer, I guess I'll put it. Um, there's times when um, we sort of rely on. So, for example, if we're looking at a an urban station, let's just say Miami, Florida, for example, um, you know, we noticed that there. I mean, last year there was a, a, a tremendous number of days that it observed. Uh, daily minimum temperatures that were above 80 degrees Fahrenheit, it smashed its old annual record. And, um, and you know, we, we believe that to be uh, accurate, uh, but there could be, you know, there could be some change due to the siting and, and, you know, urban development around the airport where that station is. There could be some subtle influences of non-meteorological factors that, that are playing into those temperature measurements. Unfortunately, we, we don't directly um, account for some of those things in some of the numbers that we're reporting. We just simply report what that ASOS station recorded. Uh, however, yeah, and, and we sort of leave most of that sort of quality control to NCEI. However, we, if we do notice, and, and actually most, I have to give credit to, to William Schmitz, the service climatologist. He um, this is something that he does uh, quite a bit in, in his work, and he could probably speak to it better than I, but um, all the time he notices you know, data and quality control issues with, with station observations. As an example, during uh, the recent winter storm that we had, he noticed that a lot of the co-op stations or sort of the human observers, um, they were putting in uh, snowfall totals um, in, in inches into the liquid uh, equivalent precipitation column. So, you know, basically they were reporting five inches of liquid equivalent precipitation when we knew that there was, you know, there, that that was not the case, that they were trying to report the snowfall total. So he would go through and request that all of those values be changed in the official ACES database, as it's called. Um, so we do actively engage in that type of quality control. Thanks much. Appreciate it. Good. So, Jordan, I want to hit on some of the highlights of the 2017 report, and we can continue to do this kind of in a Q&A fashion if you'd like. Or, or sure. certainly, I know you um, spent a, obviously a great amount of time on the report itself, and I don't know if you would like to uh, lead us through that part of the discussion. Whatever is easiest for you. Well, I'll, I'll ask about this, and I know we touched upon it a moment ago uh, with regards to uh, tropical cyclones, both those that made landfall and didn't. Um, the ones that didn't, um, just to, uh, to to quote here, those landfalling tropical cyclones contributed to at least 10% of the annual precipitation absorbed in portions of every state within the region. Mind you, again, your region including more than, of course, just our Carolinas here, but also uh, Florida and uh, the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico and, and, and the like. Um, I'm wondering if you had to slide a headline on the 2017 report would it have something to do with these tropical cyclones that we saw in 2017 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, they, they were a definitely one of the biggest headlines, if not the biggest headline. Um, and, I, you know, honestly, I think a lot of that has to do also with what has happened recently in previous years prior to 2017. We had really been through, a, you know, well-documented hurricane drought, uh, at, you know, for portions of the region, particularly Florida. Um, I think it had been since uh, 2005 with Hurricane Wilma was the last time that a hurricane had made fall uh, landfall in Florida prior to Hurricane Irma uh, last year. Uh, so there had been, you know, sort of this lull in in hurricane activity overall. Now I don't want to misstate. Uh, there were also, you know, s- even during those relatively quiet years, we still had some very impactful storms like Sandy uh, and Irene in 2011 and others. Uh, but I, I, it had been quite a while since we'd seen a season like this where we had a relatively high frequency of storms and also quite a few storms that were very intense and that made landfall as well. So um, I think all of those factors really came together to produce a, a, a kind of a blockbuster season. Yeah, and I know. Jordan. Said, go ahead, Shay. Oh, sorry. Um, I just want to supplement that real quick. Uh, your reports are very, very detailed, and you talk about Hurricane Irma and citrus fruit losses that, that range from less than 30% to nearly 100% in groves across central and southern Florida. I mean, you talk about, uh, what is it, the um, quantity of fruit that dropped from trees due to high winds, 50-mile-per-hour uh, wind stripping off, of, off immature nuts and blowing down pecan trees and all kinds of things having to do with agriculture with these systems. Can you, can you tell us a little bit how you gathered that data? Yeah. Um, yeah. So one thing, uh, and I'm glad you brought that up because that that's really, you know, we're, you know, we, we consider ourselves weather geeks for sure at, at the Climate Center. Um, and, and we're all into, you know, gathering really interesting meteorological and climate stats. And, and the, the report is certainly full of that. But what we don't want to forget, too, is the, the human and societal impacts that are associated with that. And so, we really try to focus um, on that as well in the reports. And so, um, you know, there's a, a variety of different sources that I get that agricultural information from. Uh, one is the um, USDA agricultural reports uh, that are actually issued weekly uh, during the growing season. And then they're issued monthly, right, like right now during the, uh, the winter off season. And those, uh, those are issued uh, by state, so all of the states have their own reports, and they issue them regularly. And there's a lot of great um, sort of on-the-ground information that um, agricultural producers, uh, ranchers, a, a wide, uh, you know, fruit and vegetable producers, they put in all sorts of great details that I really can mine and, and gather when we have significant events like a hurricane landfall, for example. Another key resource is uh, Pam Knox. Uh, so she's an agricultural climatologist at UGA, the University of Georgia. Um, and uh, I, you know, I became acquainted with her. Uh, Dr. John Knox, uh, her uh, husband, was one of my professors there. And so um, she is, has been a tremendous resource for us. Um, you know, she has a blog that she posts a lot of really interesting agricultural articles that tie in sort of examine the weather link, weather and climate linkages to agriculture. So I really mine her blog and, and some of the articles that she posts there. And another Very good. Example James, back of, to you. Oh, thank you, Shay. Another example of that uh, comes on the, the, the section about severe weather, where you guys talk about on, on May 30th, thunderstorm wind gusts estimated at 80 to 90 miles per hour, 
caused trees uh, to fall on several homes and vehicles across Sampson County, North Carolina. You may all remember that's also the, where the, the roof was ripped off the, the fire department, injuring at least 12. To Shay's point, approximately 16,000 turkeys were killed as the strong winds destroyed numerous poultry houses. I mean, like, again, just applauding the, the level of detail here uh, across the board because that was a detail that had that had slipped my mind. And um, I hope that you you know that you're in good company tonight in terms of uh, nerds who really appreciate all this data because I, I think I had a little carried away with the highlighting on this page. Um, okay, I kind James. of attempted to read the whole thing. Yes, Scotty. You're talking about severe weather, and I, I didn't want to take away from your notes, but that was the – the, the part that really stuck out to me with, with being in Western North Carolina and all the numerous tornadoes. But, uh, you know, Jordan, looking at your report, a, a total of 312 tornadoes in the southeast. Uh, 65% of those was in the month of January, which I found fascinating. Yep. Um, and it was the fifth most tornadoes reported in the southeast since records have been kept. I mean, that is that's amazing for last year of just how many tornadoes there was here in the southeast. The, definitely, the severe weather was was definitely another key headline that that you know that really came out of last year's um, report. And um, yeah, there's there's just so many different nuggets that that I could spend time on here. But you're right. I mean, the the tornado activity across the region. I'm glad you got that map up uh, that I, that I produced uh, to go along with the report. And so each of those uh, triangles represents a confirmed, and these are all confirmed tornadoes, by the way. They're not just the, the you know, sort of the LSR, local storm reports. Uh, they, these are the confirmed tornadoes and, you know, color-coded by season. And, um, you know, I, and I think James mentioned this earlier, um, Georgia was really the epicenter of a lot of the tornado activity last year. Um, it set, uh, I believe, yeah, it set at the state record for the most, um, the most tornadoes that it's observed and it's written, you know, in its history going back to 1950. Yeah. Over a third of those 312 tornadoes occurred in Georgia alone. Um, I think, I think, I think your report said 27 in one day and 41 in a two day time frame for, for tornadoes. I mean, that's, that's Oklahoma, Kansas numbers right there. <laughs> yeah. Jan January was just off the charts. Um, I, I remember that vividly. I'm, I'm actually, uh, grew up in, in central Georgia, uh, actually right where that red uh, triangle is in the center of the state. That's about where I grew up uh, and spent six, the first 16 years of my life there uh, near near the city of Macon. Um, January was just absolutely incredible uh, in terms of just days and days of, of several different outbreaks that affected the state. And you're right, yeah, they set their daily record, their two-day uh, record, um, I believe the, the month of January was a record and the year. So it's they basically, you know, it was a full house if you're a, if you're a poker fan. Um, yeah, re really impressive. Uh, and unfortunately, I think one one aspect that I highlighted um, of the 17 fatalities and at least 91 injuries across the entire region that were caused by tornadoes, 16 of those 17 fatalities and at least 62 of the 91 injuries occurred in Georgia. So not only did we see the lion's share of the tornadoes themselves, unfortunately, we saw a lot of the human impacts there, which you might expect. And Definitely this, so. Well, oh, and I was just going to – one other thing, I, and I'll give it back to you, James. One other thing I just found fascinating is, um, you know, 4,059 uh, severe weather reports. That's up 120% of normal. Uh, obviously, the month of April, May, and July with those coming out. But uh, my question to you is, doing the, the research – 
have you seen an uptick in, in severe weather? Obviously, last year's tornado, I, I don't want to say it's an anomaly because we do get tornadoes in the southeast, but it, it was kind of an uptick from that. But the overall scheme of doing this, do you guys find that there's more severe weather reports going on now in the southeast and maybe even tornadoes and, than what we've seen in the past? That's a great question. I think so. It's kind of a it's kind of a um, it's a tricky issue because the the severe storm report database that the SPC or the Storm Prediction Center, which I get all of this data from, by the way, um, it, it's a great archive. I mean, it's it's very comprehensive in terms of their uh, their reporting and and um, you know that the, they categorize um, severe weather reports down into whether it's thunderstorm winds, straight line winds. Uh, tornadoes and hail. Uh, but one issue with that is a reporting bias over time. And so we have to keep that in mind, looking at some of these reports numbers, uh, and especially when you're thinking about it in terms of trends over time, um, a lot of the earlier years, so say, you know, and the, so the database goes back to 1950. And so I would say from about 1950 to say 1980-ish or so, maybe even 1990 when the Doppler radar technology came online, um, that there was, there was obviously there was fewer people that lived in the region. Um, technology was not nearly what it was today. And so severe weather just simply wasn't observed as much and therefore it wasn't reported as, as consistently as it is today. So we have to be really, and actually, um, at the climate center, we actually did a, a study, um, looking at some of these reporting trends specifically for tornadoes. And we found that for tornadoes specifically, um, it's better to exclude uh, F-zeros or EF-zeros uh, when you're looking at trends over time because those weakest tornadoes are often um, left out disproportionately in the earlier portion of the record just because there were fewer people uh, around to observe them. And, you know, they're just weak and short-lived and we didn't have Doppler radar uh, to detect them. So uh, anyway, the what I'm getting at is that it's, it's easy to, to look at that data record and say, oh, you know, severe, severe weather is really on the, on the increase across the Southeast, but we would, we would need to sort of um, account for the reporting and, and to detrend that, um, you know, according to the, to those biases that are in the reporting. But nonetheless, taking all of that into account, I would still say we've, there's been um, quite not, not this winter uh, just from all of the cold, uh, that we've had, but there's been quite a few previous uh, winters where we've seen uh, higher than usual severe weather activity across the southeast, and, and certainly 2017 was an example. Definitely. One last point, and I'll, I'll toss it. I know Jared has a question. Um, one last point, you know, with as crazy as the tornado season was, Ash County in North Carolina, Western North Carolina, recorded their first tornado ever. And if you're not familiar with Ash County, that's on the border of Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee. Um, it's in the high mountains, and uh, they indeed did have a tornado. I think it was from Tropical Storm Nate um, when Nate was moving through the southeast. So, again, right. just a, a crazy, crazy year for tornadoes in the southeast. That's a good example, too, of, uh, you know, one of the, the key tornado myths out there um, is that tornadoes can't, they don't occur in mountains, you know, that it, it just doesn't work that way. Well, here's a good example of, you know, yes, they, they aren't as, as, as common in, in um, elevated terrains like Western North Carolina, but they, they do occur when we have, you know, very powerful storm systems uh, or a, a hurricane that's penetrating inland. 
um, they can produce tornadoes uh, in mountainous areas. So that's, uh, you know, kind of an interesting example debunking that popular myth. Uh, James or Jared, Jay, whoever. <laughs> yeah, Jared, Jared hasn't. Yeah, yet. Jordan. Yeah, Jordan, um, you know, when we think billion-dollar disasters, we think of hurricanes, we think of severe weather, we think of uh, floods, things like that. But um, the first billion-dollar disaster was freeze, um, very hard freeze that happened, you know. And as you know, you know, it didn't happen abnormally late in the year, but we had very abnormal warmth during February that helped to get things blooming. Uh, is the RCC finding that? we're seeing more and more impacts from these kinds of uh, freezes towards the end of the year or towards the end of the season and the beginning of the growing season there? It, I think it's certainly, it's, it's, it's troublesome at time, you know, to, um, you know, to really um, diagnose some of these freeze events, because I think the key point that you made there is, is that this, you know, the freeze last March, it wasn't, um, it wasn't particularly late or unusually late in, in the, in the spring season. But nonetheless, we still had tremendous impacts uh, from that particular freeze. And, and like you mentioned, a lot of that had to do with uh, the prior winter season where it was just persistently warm uh, throughout, you know, from really for extending from December all the way through February. Um, and so the, a lot of these fruit crops in particular, they weren't able to accumulate um, what um, agricultural producers refer to as chill hours. And so that's it's defined as an hour of time uh, in which the air temperature is 45 degrees or less. And so um, these chill hours are really important for fruit crops to kind of remain dormant during the winter season. Uh, and so that they don't bud prematurely in say late February going into March, which would make them more vulnerable to a spring freeze, whether it's early in the season or late. Um, and so unfortunately we saw kind of the worst case scenario develop last uh, last winter going into the spring where we had essentially, you know, some of the fewest chill hours that have been recorded, uh, on, re you know, on record for some of these crops. And unfortunately that freeze came at a very unfortunate time and destroyed a lot of the, the peach, uh, peach crop in particular in Georgia and South Carolina and also blueberries as well. I'm going to follow up on uh, that question and, and screen share here for you. I um, observed snowfall analysis from the event uh, in the middle of December, a couple of weeks before Christmas. We'll stay on the cold weather uh, topic here for a minute. Um, this was pretty, uh, pretty phenomenal as well. I know several, several snow records were set out of this event. Um, suburban Atlanta with, you know, multiple inches of snow. You're seeing six inches in east of Birmingham. Um, what kind of stands out to you from from this event? A little bit different than maybe something that's, you know, is going to cause a lot of damage, but certainly a, a notable event. Definitely, yeah. This was this was a really interesting storm um, in in a in a couple of regards. First is just the um, sort of the a very long uh, broad swath of uh, of snowfall extending. I mean, even outside of our region, all the way down to New Orleans and portions of southern Louisiana all the way up to, you know, past Richmond, Virginia, into the, um, uh, the eastern shore of, of Virginia and Maryland uh, and Delaware. Uh, just a, you know, a really long, continuous swath of snow. And um, I believe uh, Mobile, Alabama, they recorded an inch with this, uh, with this system, and that was their earliest uh, snowfall on record. So if we think earliest in terms of 
um, you know, starting starting a winter season uh, in in December. Uh, this was their earliest on record. And then the other, um, I think the other big uh, feature of this particular storm system is just that that bullseye there in uh, kind of northwest of Atlanta, where uh, some of the more some of the heaviest snowfall totals were recorded in this entire system, uh, beating out in some cases portions of western North Carolina uh, that benefit from topography, you know, high elevation. Um, and, uh, so, you know, places like, I think Dallas, uh, Northwest of, of Atlanta, a co-op station that, uh, several stations that observed their highest one day snowfall for any month on record, not just December. So, um, I think there were at least three of those stations Northwest of Atlanta. Um, thankfully, uh, that, that bullseye was not directly over the city of Atlanta and didn't cause another, uh, snowpocalypse or snowmageddon like we observed several <laughs> years ago. Uh, that could have been a nightmare, but but nonetheless, we did see some pretty significant impacts from this in terms of transportation and and power outages and so forth. And Jordan, I have one more question for you. Um, oh, sorry, James. Um, I, was just, I wanted to ask. I know I, we talked a little bit about this briefly before the show. Not not getting into the matrix for the air temperatures and any of that, but. Do you look at the ENSO phasing, which is be La Nina and El Nino phasing uh, as part of your studies? Do you correlate any of this information with the ENSO cycles? We don't, um, I wouldn't say that we, you know, sort of directly, um, you know, perform those types of analyses. We don't, you know, directly correlate what we're looking at, um, you know, in, in sort of a, a research perspective, although that's, you know, certainly interesting, but we do definitely keep in mind, you know, what phase of the ENSO cycle we're in and how, um, how that, you know, how that could be operating in terms of the regional climate of the Southeast. I mean, the Southeast does, as you know, him, I mean, it has a uh, very distinct El Nino, La Nina signature at times, um, although there can be some variability in terms of the temperature and precipitation response. And I think we're seeing some of that uh, this winter, even though we're in a La Nina, and we have seen an, an uptick in drought conditions, it's going to be interesting to see how that finishes out here uh, in February. But definitely, ENSO is a very important teleconnection uh, that, that we take into account. Also, other teleconnections like uh, the NAO is, is a big one, especially during the winter season. Um, you know, so this, uh, for viewers, this is the North Atlantic Oscillation. Um, basically looks at uh, sea level pressure patterns between the uh, northern Atlantic and, the, and sort of uh, the central Atlantic or further to the south. And, um, you know, it seems like we've been in, you know, we've had some, some phase, uh, some periods in the NAO negative pattern where we've had uh, a lot of high pressure or blocking patterns over Greenland. And so that's allowed a lot of, lot of troughiness uh, or, you know, so, uh, areas of low pressure to really um, persistently park themselves, if you will, over, over parts of the Southeast. And I think that's kind of been the part of the story so far this winter with all the, the, uh, persistent cold that we've had is just this kind of pattern, this teleconnection pattern sort of locking in place. Jordan, I think we hit on, um, a lot of the, the highlights that we picked out from the report. Uh, but as we head towards the one hour mark of our broadcast, uh, this evening, I was wanted to give you the opportunity to share anything that maybe jumped out at you or stood out or, or, or stands out as you look back at the report you compiled for 2017. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. I think we, um, 
Yeah, we covered a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, the 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 drought situation was was kind of interesting last year, and it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a huge story, especially compared to 2016. Um, you know, in the latter part of 2016, especially autumn, we had uh, a very intense drought uh, that that gripped a lot of the southeast, and it led to uh, one of the worst wildfire seasons that we've seen in parts of the region, particularly North Carolina. And uh, the Gatlinburg, uh, Tennessee fire was was one of those prevalent fires, uh, really destructive as well. Um, so we were kind of moving out of that into the beginning of 2017. Um, and you can kind of, I'm glad you brought that graphic up. You can really see uh, there in, in January and February, moving into March, um, you know, sort of the, the vestiges or the remnants of that uh, drought with, uh, you know, D, D2 and D3 um, severe to extreme drought still kind of anchored in, in parts of Alabama and Georgia um, and, and even parts of western Western Carolinas. But we got some really beneficial rainfall uh, during the late winter and into the spring season um, that really, you know, cut down on that interior drought. But what was um, what was happening at sort of the same time was that we saw an intense uh, a, an emergence rather of drought conditions in southern Georgia and in much of Florida. And that uh, led to a an extremely active wildfire season in, in those areas. Um, we saw the uh, West Mims fire was was a huge fire in the Okefenokee Swamp uh, that, you know, caused caused a lot of um, ecological damage there locally. But also uh, we saw tourist reductions to that area, even along the Atlantic beaches uh, that, that that were nearby. So um, you know, we also saw uh, ash and uh, smoke that descended on Jacksonville, Florida for a couple of days uh, from that fire. So, um, you know, really impactful fire season. And then, um, you know, the pattern kind of changed again and we saw uh, the rains return during the summer, the wet season for Florida. That really helped them out. So, um, you know, long story short, I guess what I'm getting, there's kind of been this oscillation and drought from the interior portion of the region to some of the the more coastal areas and now we're you know i think we lately uh within the past few months we've seen the switch back to a drier interior and a wetter coastal area and certainly the tropical cyclones limit you know uh eliminated any vestiges of the uh of the coastal drought especially in florida uh but it's just a kind of interesting uh seesaw pattern if you will that kind of noticed uh you know between different areas of drought in the region well, I know we are only um, uh, two months here into t 2018. You did an outstanding job with uh, the 2017 report, and I understand uh, the January snapshot is out, January of, of this year. Uh, so so how does this year uh, look like it's starting off for us? Cold, believe it or not. Below average temperatures, which is something that we have not seen uh, in quite a while, at least to the, um, to the, the intensity that we saw uh, during January. Um, so, you know, so yeah, below average temperatures, uh, dryness continued across, um, you know, much of the region, although we did see some, uh, start to see some improvements towards the end of the month with, with the rainfall, rain, uh, wetter pattern returning. Uh, so, uh, hopefully that will continue throughout February as well. Um, severe weather has been extremely quiet so far this winter, com especially compared to last winter. Uh, I think we've only had less than half a dozen confirmed tornadoes since December 1st. Um, so, you know, severe, and, and obviously there's a, a, a good correlation between 
you know, these really cold patterns and, and shutting off any kind of thunderstorm activity. Uh, so those really go hand in hand. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where we, where we stand right now. I uh, appreciate that um, snapshot there very much. As we come up on the one-hour uh, mark of our broadcast, I'll invite our listeners to stay tuned because I know uh, Jared Smith is going to be giving us uh, a breakdown of uh, an event many of you will probably remember for some time if you were living along the coast in regards to this week's false tsunami warning. But before we do that, uh, I promised Jordan, and we were looking forward to this as well too, so I wanted to give you some time to kind of walk us through the Southeast Regional Climate Center's website site to show off some of these tool sets that are available not only to you guys but to the general public as well too great yeah i'd love to uh, love to do that here so i'll go ahead and share my screen and hopefully got it okay good um so yeah the first uh first thing i wanted to show well let me uh, let me go back here just to the home page uh so this is cert.com uh cert being short for southeast regional climate center so this is our home page. Um, we've got a, a, you know, a nice, if you scroll down a little bit, we've got this uh, rotating uh, series of maps here in the middle, just kind of showing uh, snapshots of our climate perspectives tool. Um, and, you know, uh, whether it be uh, temperatures, the values, uh, ranking, temperature rankings like uh, this particular map. Um, so it just kind of scrolls through it. But I'll give you a short demo of, of climate perspectives here in just a second. Um, and then some of our featured products uh, here over in this uh, right-hand column. Uh, but before I do that, I want to um, give a little plug here uh, to the users. We just started a new uh, subscription service. Uh, so if you, uh, if you are interested in receiving our monthly, quarterly, and annual reports in, a, in a, an email, a regular email, you can subscribe. Uh, here just by typing in your email and we promise we won't you know send you any spam or anything like that or share it with anybody else um, and uh, so the the website address is cert.com slash subscribe so really easy uh, straightforward thing to sign up for um, one other web page I want to show you is uh, where you can we have an archive of our monthly and annual and also our quarterly reports. Uh, so if you wanna see you know, any of our previous reports that we published, we have a couple of pages set up for that. Uh, so if you, uh, from our homepage, if you go to the climate data uh, tab at the top and scroll down to monthly slash seasonal climate information, uh, that will bring you to this page. And if you scroll down to the bottom, there's a section Southeast monthly climate report and we have, uh, we've started the archive back uh, last summer. Uh, and, but you can also, if you wanna go back even before that, the section just above that actually has all of the reports going back to June, 2003. Um, so this is kind of a nice um, uh, archive uh, for those reports, monthly and annual. And we have a different page set up for our quarterly climate impacts and outlook reports. And these are a little bit in a little bit of a different format than the monthly and annuals, um, we partner with uh, NCEI uh, and uh, also our um, uh, some of our state climatologists and a lot of our partners across the region to produce these reports. And so we have a nice archive of those and also any special reports that we issue. Uh, this was one we produced for that fall 2016 drought that I talked about. So we have all of those uh, hyperlinked here for you. Um, so I wanted to 
uh, spend just a minute or two showing uh, Southeast Climate Perspectives, which is a tool we developed to basically take a, a, a variety of station data across the region and to place um, current conditions, uh, or sorry, um, um, historical conditions of temperature or precipitation and put those in a, in a historical or climate perspective, sort of comparing um, you know, temperatures that say were observed yesterday, how did those rank uh, compared to the historical record or what was the departure from average? You know, how different from average was it? So I'll just show this tab here called regional map perspectives. Uh, it's a really cool tool here um, that shows you all of the different um, first order stations. And so these are the, the automated airport stations. Uh, like uh, here's uh, the one for Raleigh-Durham area. Um, and we also have uh, co-op stations in here. So these are the citizen observer um, uh, um, observations that are, that are incorporated into the database. So just to kind of show you, um, you know, how powerful this tool is, one thing you can do, let's just take a look and see um, for last year, uh, annual temperatures last year, uh, where did they rank? Um, so, uh, you know, we talked about how exceptionally warm uh, portions of the region were. So let's just kind of show that in a, in a map perspective. So we'll drop down here in this, in this date uh, selection box. I'll choose uh, December 31st and we'll choose year to date so that we'll look at the entire year of 2017. You notice that I chose uh, mean temperature as the variable. So that's the average of the daily maximum and the daily minimum temperature. And let's look at the rankings because there were quite a few uh, exceptional rankings. So we'll click show perspectives and you see a new uh, map pops up here with the legend over here at the right showing kind of color coding, um, you know, how the mean annual temperatures across the region ranked for individual stations. And so, um, you know, you can see here that a lot of them are shaded in sort of the, the light red and dark red. So that indicates they're anywhere from their fifth warmest to all the way up to their warmest on record. Um, you know, a bunch of stations like, um, let's see, I think Augusta's here somewhere. Yeah, there's Augusta uh, and others. So if another way you can look at this departures from normal, so we'll change that. So you can see pretty much the entire region was above, above average. So anywhere from plus one to plus four degrees Fahrenheit or more above average. So um, really cool, tool uh, that we developed at the center that allows you to, to analyze temperature and precipitation data in a variety of different ways. Um, so one other quick um, page that we developed, uh, this is not just a southeastern tool, we actually expanded it to uh, incorporate all of the different uh, regions that are reflective of the six regional centers. We also have a continental U.S. Uh, map perspective that we developed. And so that'll pop up here. And let me just zoom in a little bit. And so we actually have, uh, and in this version, uh, the national version, we actually just have the automated stations uh, here. We, I don't believe we have um, the co-op stations incorporated in this version. Um, so just to show you a quick example, if we want to take a look at last, uh, last month, so January, what did uh, temperatures look like across the continental U.S. We'll produce a map that looks like this. And uh, it's really cool to kind of 
you know, these uh, patterns where we have uh, such a different regime in the Western United States versus the Southeastern and, and Southern United States. It really show. I think the colors really show that out well. We had, uh, you know, a lot of uh, high pressure and ridging in the Western U.S. So you see all of the um, uh, warmer than average temperatures across the West. And in contrast, we had uh, a lot of troughing in the jet stream or, or lower pressure, uh, which yielded colder or below average temperatures across the Southeast. And so you, you can kind of connect what's going on in the atmosphere to what we see in the temperature uh, departures from normal. So um, I'll stop there with that. But uh, that link, by the way, is if you go to climate data and scroll all the way towards the bottom, climate perspective uh, links, uh, that, that's where you can find that there. Um, let's see here. I think that was, I think those were the main uh, highlights that I wanted to show for, um, for our website. Well, I appreciate that tour very much. We've got it up on the screen, uh, Southeast Regional Climate Center, SERCC.com, if you're listening to uh, the podcast uh, version of our, our show tonight. And, um, Jordan, uh, thank you again for uh, the report that you shared with us tonight. Uh, we'll be sure to link that out, uh, and people can go to your website as, as well, too, if they want to kind of deep dive on um, all of these uh, specifics. You're welcome to stick around as uh, we wrap up our, our show here with a little overtime special. Uh, we'll go back on down to um, uh, Charleston, South Carolina in just a second, but I, I almost completely forgot, and I'm sure Scotty Powell would have corrected me, but but Jordan, I need to give you time uh, to share your uh, social media handles with us uh, for you and or the center uh, so the folks who are listening uh, to our show uh, can get in touch with you guys if they have any questions uh, to reach out directly to you. Great. <clears throat> yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so my personal handle is, or on Facebook, you can find me, uh, Jordan McLeod, obviously, is, is me. Uh, but also the uh, Southeast Regional Climate Center, we have both a Facebook page and a, um, and a Twitter uh, page as well. So um, let me um, quickly pull those up here, and then I'll share my screen again. And as you're doing that, I'll remind folks who are who are listening tonight from our kind of our extended coverage area outside the Carolinas that uh, these guys are doing more than just North Carolina and South Carolina. So if you're watching us, uh, maybe in uh, Phoenix City, Alabama tonight on our, our telecast there, they've got information for you as well. Great. So here's um, yeah. So here's our Facebook page at the Regional Climate Center. Um, and yeah, just Southeast Regional Climate Center uh, CERC. And so you can come here and like our page, uh, uh, William Schmitz uh, post at least once a day, if you know, sometimes multiple times per day, does a great job, uh, you know, updating um, everybody, you know, whether when we release a report, like uh, uh, we just published that, uh, the January report today. So here's the, uh, the social media post for that on Facebook. And then we also have our Twitter page, which is at uh, SERCC. And uh, so there, hey, there's me. Uh, I like that retweet. Yeah, I know. That's, uh, yeah, it <laughs> looks really good. I, I think I recognize that guy. Yeah. I um, like his hat. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so it'd be great. Uh, we, we, you know, we're, we're, we try to do our best to really share and push out information as much as possible. And, um, you know, we, we love for folks to, to share the stuff that we put out there. So, uh, be glad to have you uh, tag along. 
I appreciate that very much, and uh, thank you again, uh, Jordan, uh, to you and your colleagues for uh, all of this all this great data. Again, you're welcome to uh, stick around as, as we head into OT and head down to Jared Smith. Jordan, thanks again. Uh, that, was, uh, that was really fantastic. I, know I use uh, RCC data constantly uh, to pull out really random weird stats uh, for my followers on my uh, social media. So, uh, you know, it's one of many great uses for it. Uh, keep up the great work. It's awesome. So, great bit, huh? so uh, uh, everybody from uh, Texas up to Maine had a little bit of a scare. We had the AccuWeather app installed yesterday. Around uh, 8.30 or so, um, routine test of the tsunami warning system was, uh, was run by the National Tsunami Forecast Center. And uh, I'm to grab that and send it out to everybody. And it was a very interesting problem to try and figure out what the heck happened. So let me, uh, let me just share what this looked like real quick. I'm going to just, uh, just go through a series of tweets. And when we look at this, this is from Wilson Courier in Charleston, and clearly everybody freaking out. I know Scotty and um, everybody on NWS was getting messages from you know all the local uh, weather forecast offices saying there was no tsunami warning. It was a little crazy. It was a little crazy. Um, but AccuWeather, for some reason, grabbed this test and uh, pushed it out to everybody as a tsunami warning. If you click through, if you if you tap through, um, you would see that it was a test and like okay, you, you know, you can breathe. You don't have to run to high ground. Uh, but unlike the guy who replied to the Post and Courier, the guy from Hawaii did not find a new job. Let me just make that completely clear. This is not a this is not a Hawaii thing. This is this is nothing like that. Um. The Weather Service uh, transmitted it mostly correctly. AccuWeather parsed it pretty forgivingly, but mostly correctly. And so, you know, when you have a situation like this, often you find that um, it's kind of a confluence of events. And that's certainly what happened here. So it was kind of fun to do a little Twitter sleuthing on this. And uh, and uh, I put together a little thread on Twitter, uh, on my personal Twitter. And uh, first thought was, okay, AccuWeather didn't see the... Um, you know, it didn't see the test text in the uh, in the product, and it, yep, it said test. I mean, here's what it looked like. It looked like, but there's a little clue at the bottom of this. We're gonna get back to that in a second. But you see, test, test, test all over the place. No big deal, right? And um, you know, it wasn't coded with the usual valid time extent code. And what the heck is valid time and extent code? So let's get really nerdy with it here. This is frightening uh, to anybody who has never dealt with uh, parsing weather service text products, but we look at this PV text string here. And what this is basically a bunch of code that says, you know, what kind of product is it? Is it operational? Is it a test? Uh, what is it? Is it a new warning? Is it a continued warning? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, what office issued it? What kind of phenomena is it? Is it a tsunami? Is it a tornado? Is it a severe thunderstorm? Significance? Is it a warning? A watch? Things like that. Uh, the ETN, the event tracking number, we'll get to that back to that in just a second. And then uh, start and end times for it as well. And so you'll note that, you know, we didn't quite get that. So that's kind of interesting. There's a lot of weird stuff going on with, with, with these tests that were being issued because, as it turned out, it sent one copy that had all of these uh, things. This is a follow up message and it had all of these uh, UC uh, county codes here. Uh, and then there's your VTech with the uh, test there. Uh, incremented, but yeah, that 
it was an interesting confluence of events. You thought, okay, maybe it's a truncated message. Maybe it was, uh, you know, you know, maybe AccuWeather Sparser for some reason. Maybe somebody did a code push and reverted all the stuff that said look for test. Um, but uh, with Daryl Herzman, uh, uh, father of NWS Chat from um, uh, Iowa State, and uh, and, and he's got um, these are his two cents, and it and it makes sense. Um, you know, number one, the tsunami products are a little weird. Um, you know, there's there's typical policy directives that are in place, very strict format um, that you can validate against. It's all published on the web. If you uh, if you're looking for a great way to uh, spend time with friends at parties, you can pull out the NWS. Uh, you know, the product descriptions there, and you can really, you, I mean, you will be the most popular guy there. Um, you know, everything was coded with a test, but. This third part here, where it said the event tracking number three was reused and should not have been, um, Devin Boyer, who works at Mapbox, um, which is a uh, it's a mapping company, they they kind of uh, compete with Google Maps. They have beautiful web maps, um, but he's also a meteorologist, a Penn State grad, and um, what had happened was the test used an event tracking number that had been used previously with the tsunami threat that originated a couple weeks ago, the 24th of January, where we had that earthquake that happened in the Pacific and we were very concerned about Kodiak, Alaska, and those areas. And so the test reused event tracking number number three. And so AccuWeather's parser, presumably without having any, you know, without having any sort of knowledge of how AccuWeather's parser works, uh, saw that and assumed it was an update and pushed out that update to that original event. So that is probably the best theory of what happened. There was a lot of ba back and forth, a lot of finger pointing, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll freely admit, uh, you know, I was like, well, wait a second, it says test. It clearly says test. The weather service did nothing wrong. Actually, yeah, there was something slightly wrong. Just that one little number didn't increment from three to four. Made all the difference in the world. This is that after, um, after all was said and done, um, the uh, tsunami warning center issued another tsunami warning that said there was no tsunami warning. Um, so this is a test product and everything. And um, this is the after test product. Uh, and my weather channel app had an active tsunami warning in effect uh, later that morning. So certainly a very uh, interesting situation, but as you can see, we're all high and dry. Uh, no tsunamis uh, to be seen. And so as a result, you know, uh, it's a very complex programming problem. It's very, uh, you know, when you get when you get systems like this, um, you, you know, it usually, again, it usually takes a confluence of events of th for things to go wrong like this. Um, and it just happened to be that you combine this one weird ETN with this test product that went through. Most parsers rejected it. You didn't really see alerts from anybody else. But in the case of AccuWeather, it was like, hey, this looks like an update. Push it out. Uh, so that's what happened. That's what I think happened. I, I would love to hear, you know, if if I know that there's probably proprietary stuff involved, AccuWeather probably isn't going to get into the details of it. I know that they were a little mad about NWS pointing figures and it was just a lot of finger pointing in weather Twitter. Um, but, but ultimately, the, the the long and short of it is that the weather enterprise has some work to do. Blame is usually shared. And in this case, it was. Um, and no, the guy from Hawaii is not working at AccuWeather. Jared, thank you very much. That was that was extremely insightful. So appreciate that. I, I guess really a big question is, 
what do we do if there is one here? We've never been through that kind of exercise before. So that's, that's definitely something maybe we could do another show on uh, and maybe have Stephen Jaume from the College of Charleston come back on since he, he was on with us a couple of years back when there's a lot of earthquake activity going on. But what do we do along our coastline? We can't even get a two-day evacuation right for a hurricane. What do we do when there's a tsunami? Um, you know, that's, these are great questions. So it might be a good time to visit that that topic sometime this year. So thank you for all your information. Mm-hmm. And I when you write with National Weather Service parsers for fun, that's what happens. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I was just going to echo that point. I feel like I understand what happened now so much clearer and so much uh, better than, than I did yesterday as uh, so many of us were, were trying to figure out what was going on. So uh, nice detective work, uh, uh, Mr. Smith. And uh, with that, uh, we'll go ahead and uh, look to start wrapping up our show. But before we do, I know a couple of us have uh, some tweets of the week we wanted to very quickly share, including our guest tonight, Jordan, who brought a tweet along. Uh, so if you've got that up, um, I can uh, make my way over to you. But while uh, while you work to pull that up, I, I think Jared's got his. So let's go to Jared real fast. Yeah, why the heck not? One more for me. So, um, y'all watched the Falcon Heavy launch. That was incredible. Um, it, it was it was just phenomenal. And uh, you know, the, the, watching the rockets land next to each other, and then the, and then the Tesla, you know, now on its way to a, an orbit that will circle Mars. I mean, I, I just think that um, William Churchill over at uh, National Weather Service in Memphis uh, caught. A really cool thermal signature from uh, GoZeast, Go16. Uh, Falcon Heavy was launching. I'm going to try and zoom in on this a little bit. Let's see if the zoom actually works. Oh, yeah, there it is. So, yeah, so there's your uh, – this is on water vapor imagery. I think this was mid-level, as I recall. And there's your little thermal signature right there of the rocket. And you can – and there's also plenty of other um, – uh, there's other visible image out there. You can see the uh, – you can see the uh, – settling at the launch pad there but this is really cool as it was uh, uh, racing up into orbit uh, with Starman and Elon's Roadster so again if you if you missed that Falcon Heavy launch I really 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 strongly encourage that you watch it it is uh, it's uh, it was awe-inspiring I really enjoyed it and if you did miss it for any reason you could watch it on our platforms YouTube Periscope uh, YouTube, uh, Facebook, and the like. I think I said YouTube twice uh, to see to see mm-hmm. all those spectacular images. Is that what you got for us as well, Shay? You got that glorious view there from the dash. I sure do. And the um, the but the bottom picture are the two side cores that are returning back to the landing pads, uh, which is amazing in itself. I think we just being in this this day and age, seeing this kind of uh, technology is incredible. Now the, the central core. I'm not sure what happened there. It was a little foggy. I think they went offline. I don't think it made it back to its pad in the Pacific. I think I'm not correct. entirely sure of that, but yeah, we're not we're not sure exactly what happened there. But uh, the beautiful thing is that the two side cores did return and landed simultaneously. And Starman is out and about, floating in space. Now he's going to be on in an elliptical orbit inside of his his um, his car, his Roadster, his Tesla Roadster. For about the next oh, 200, maybe 400 million years. So maybe the the sun may, may taint that paint a little bit. It may, there's been all kinds of debate about that, but uh, will, will it stay red? Will the sun's radiation turn it white? We don't know, but it's going to be out there for a really long time. Pretty neat stuff. I'll tell you, just like Jared said, if you haven't gotten a chance to see it, 
watch it and you can watch Starman live on YouTube. Just put Starman in YouTube. It should be like one of the first ones that comes up. So. And let's I'm see. Go ahead to, and uh, uh, share my, my tweet real fast as we look at some of the video from yesterday, keeping with our, our, our space theme. Uh, I found this uh, while I was doing some reading from the Washington Post uh, about an amateur radio operator um, who was listening. He was actually looking, if you remember, there have been a couple spy satellite launches recently, and he was trying to find one of those. And what he accidentally came across was an image satellite. That's actually the name of it, I-M-A-G-E, uh, an old NASA satellite that had gone up to uh, to look at space weather some years ago and, as I understand it, some solar uh, effects as well, too. Uh, NASA had lost, lost contact with it, uh, and while he was scanning uh, the skies, came across the satellite. A really interesting piece on how they thought uh, the, the computer had essentially become frozen in space, not literally frozen but you know to borrow the the pc term it became unresponsive uh they have a theory on on how it reset itself and how this guy managed to find it uh and so they've been trying to figure out what to do with it after uh regaining contact for the first time in 12 years i thought that was a really cool story uh jordan what did you bring for us yeah so let's see here so continuing on the uh star man theme with the uh with the launch of uh uh, the, uh, the, uh, the rocket, uh, tropical cyclone Siebel, uh, photo bomb here from Starman. So you can kind of see here in the, uh, in the background, the tropical cyclone. Uh, so I thought that, you know, it was a pretty cool image continuing on this theme. And then a little, uh, funnier version, I thought, uh, the Marta bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It made it oh, secure. that's perfect. That is perfect. <laughs> you know, it's just like Levi to put something like, like that up for for his uh tweet but this is hilarious that's yeah <laughs> matt lanza for you folks <laughs> oh that's great that's 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 real good uh thank you for bringing that along uh, uh jordan i think is jordan our first guest to actually bring a tweet of the week i think so i think so so gold star a plus not only All to right. your report but also for remembering to bring a tweet uh i know we had a a, a, a full packed show tonight uh thanks to everybody who uh, tuned in i'm going to go ahead and change that uh, lower third because it's a little outdated as we uh, head over to scotty powell to uh wrap up tonight's show and tell you what's coming up in uh, future weeks right here on the carolina weather group I feel so bad because I really didn't get into the space launch yesterday, and you guys have all geeked out about it, so now I'm going to have to go brush up on that. But, yeah, uh, thank you so much, Jordan, for uh, coming on tonight. Next week we uh, have the week off, as uh, many folks will be celebrating the Valentine's holiday. But after that we have uh, Samantha Burksett. Uh, she is a uh, artist slash meteorologist, so she's going to be joining us on the 21st to talk about um, how art and meteorology have come together for her passion of uh, painting and making artistic, um, all kinds of artistic things uh, dealing with weather. And then to close out the month of February, um, I'm not sure, Shay, I've seen our email earlier today. I, I don't think we have a guest confirmed yet for the 28th, but we're going to be talking about the new goes. I guess it's goes R or goes S uh, that's going to be launched uh, on March 1st. We're going to have folks uh, on the 28th, February 28th, talking to us about that. But from my understanding, Shay, on our email, we don't have a guest confirmed yet, correct? Yeah, no, no officer, John Leslie, we're in, co I'm in contact. We, You and I are in contact with him. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he said, don't worry, we will have a top-notch guest joining us for that launch to talk about yeah. it. So it is the goes S, which will be allocated to the West Coast. So we had Gozar, which was allocated to, to uh, goes east, 
which is now GOES 16. Uh, this one will be uh, GOES West, yeah. uh, the replacement for that one. So, yep, looking forward to it. We'll have both the, the country, we'll have the tropics. It's going to be amazing. We're, we're just, and then we have two more satellites going after that. So, exciting yes. times. So we, we're not sure who's going to be joining us that night, but we are going to, like Shay said, uh, John did promise us to have a an expert uh, with us uh, on the 28th. And then uh, the month of March, we start the National Weather Podcast Month, and uh, we're excited about that as well. So uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on and start promoting that. But uh, it looks like in a fun and exciting uh, time here as uh, the Carolina Weather Group continues through the uh, 2000 year 2018. So uh, we're well, well, well past our allotted time. So we'll go ahead and log off this uh, evening. But we want to thank you for uh, watching us here at the Carolina Weather Group. And as always, uh, make sure that you um, like our social media pages, Twitter and Facebook, and follow us um, on those platforms as well as downloading uh, our um our um, podcasts on uh, iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or um, TuneIn Radio, TuneIn Radio, uh, numerous ways to uh, to be able to listen to our podcast. So for everyone here at the Carolina Weather Group, we hope you have a great week. Have a great week. Next week we'll be off. So uh, <clears throat> I think uh, James had said earlier um, that we may be playing a uh, rebroadcast of one of our favorite shows, but uh, next week we're off and then we'll be back uh, joining you on the 21st of February. Have a great week and we'll see you then.